Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to do this whole chapter. You had a good night's sleep, right? Uh, We're going to do this whole chapter. Uh, And it's important to keep this chapter as a a whole. Back in chapter 5 and in verse 10, the writer of Hebrews made this important declaration that Jesus was designated as high priest by God after the order of Melchizedek. But then he had to stop and say, now I have a lot to say to you about that, but I can't because not that it's too hard for anyone to understand, but for them, they're dull of hearing. And he spends then the rest of chapter five and all of chapter six, then offering a warning to these Christians that they need to move on to spiritual maturity, to stop staying in the basics, and that their dole of hearing will eventually cause their falling away by which they would not be able to be restored to repentance. And so a very strong warning to them to move forward in their spiritual maturity. But that doesn't mean the writer of Hebrews doesn't want to talk about Melchizedek. And that's what he's going to do for all of chapter 7. And and to talk about this, it's important to frame Hebrews back up so that we can understand what's about to happen. Remember, in understanding this, that there's obviously something critical about Melchizedek that he wants to go into this. Uh, We have probably the tendency to read chapter 7 and just kind of allow that to glaze over us with all these details about Melchizedek and, and all of that. But there is something so important about the teaching that he's used this opportunity to tell them, I need to get you on board. And it's almost like he's saying, I need to wake you up to this reality so that in chapter 6 and in verse 20, he comes back to it and says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's going to make sure we get this firmly in our mind. And I want us, as we set the, the framework for this chapter, to ask ourselves, why Melchizedek? Why would the story of Melchizedek be so important? And if you remember the purpose of the book of Hebrews, we started this study a, a few months back, is that the whole point of it is to give these Christians a stronger faith that they're enduring difficulty, they're enduring suffering, and they are being challenged to forfeit their faith. And the goal of the book of Hebrews is to strengthen their faith, to encourage endurance. And the way that he goes about doing that is by showing them a greater vision of Jesus. They need to know Jesus in a deeper way and have a better understanding of who He is. In fact, in that first lesson I used this line, that our endurance in the faith is directly in proportion to how clearly we see Jesus. And that is essential right here. That He wants to talk Melchizedek. And the reason why He must talk about Melchizedek is it has a critical connection to Jesus and will help us have a greater vision and a greater view of who Jesus is so that we will have the faith that we need. So that will be the goal of this chapter, and that's what we'll attempt over the next few minutes. In the first ten verses, what you have in Hebrews chapter 7 is essentially a recalling of what happened back in Genesis chapter 14. 
I'll give that to you in a, in a quick way. You have Abraham, and he goes and he whips on some kings of the east. And the reason he does that is those kings had gone and attacked the cities of the plain, capturing the people, Lot, one of them that had been captured. And Abraham goes and he, he wipes out those kings and wipes out the nations that they had represented. And upon doing that, in his victory, this interesting figure suddenly appears on the scene. A guy named Melchizedek, which is noted for us there in verse 1 of Hebrews 7, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, and met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation in his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also the king of Salem, which means king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues his priest forever. Interesting thing that he does. He says Melchizedek has an awful lot of symbolism behind his name. And symbolism in his appearance. The symbolism in his name is that he is king of righteousness. His name in Hebrew means king of righteousness. And he's king of Salem. And Salem means peace. Shalom, it comes from Salem. King of peace. So he is king of righteousness, king of of peace. And he's a priest of God. Very interesting to see this king-priest connection that's drawn to him. But then there is some typology that he speaks of in verse 3 when he says that he is like the Son of God. And some have read that and go, I don't know what to make of this Melchizedek because it says that he has neither father nor mother or genealogy. And we're not supposed to read that in the sense that he actually didn't have a father or didn't have a mother. It is a literary device that's being used. Not in a literal way does he have no mother or father. But notice the re-resembles. He's like the Son of God because what you'll notice with Melchizedek is he just suddenly appears on the scene. We don't know anything about him. It's as if he has no mother or father or genealogy. And he then just suddenly disappears off the scene. After Abraham pays him the tenth, you will never read about this guy, Melchizedek, ever again in terms of the historical figure. He just suddenly drops in and he suddenly vanishes off the pages. And the writer of Hebrews is using that and saying he has a a typological, a literary sense with Jesus. He's very much resembling the Son of God in that way. That He has no beginning and He seems to have no end, at least according to what's recorded. And so there's a parallel that's being given. But the big point that He wants to get at really is from verses 4 to verse 10, where He just simply lays out, Abraham paid Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Now, how important is Abraham in all of the history of Israel? As at the top. He's at the top. The promise is given to Abraham. It would be through Abraham that all the nations would be blessed. Through Abraham is going to come the Messiah. Abraham is one of the most important figures in Israel's history. And the writer of Hebrews says, do you realize he paid Melchizedek a tenth? So how important is Melchizedek if Abraham, the most important figure of Israel history, paid Melchizedek a tenth? Well, he's trying to elevate Melchizedek and saying, you need to understand how important he is. 
and then draws a conclusion. Levi is a descendant of Abraham. If we kind of went down the lineage line of genealogies and moved our way down to Jacob, we have Abraham and we get to Isaac and we get to Jacob and Jacob has sons and Levi is one of them and through Levi are the Levitical priests. So as important as Abraham is, you have Levi down here because he's a, a generation, few generations later. And Melchizedek then is even greater. And so he makes the point, ultimately, even Levi then, through the loins of Abraham, was paying a tenth. The Levitical priesthood being not as strong or as superior as Melchizedek's priesthood. That's all verses 4 through 10 right there. And all of describing about Melchizedek and, and Levi and Abraham is he just wants to drive home this truth. The superior nature of Melchizedek, his priesthood is supreme from what we see even in the historical record between Abraham and Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the superior and, and Abraham is the inferior and by connection and Levi is even more inferior to that. That brings us to verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? All right, what is he saying right here? We're going to do that a lot. We're going to okay, what did he just tell us? In this section, you have what I believe is essentially an exposition of Psalm 110 verse 4, which is quoted, you'll notice in your Bibles, in verse 17, as well as quoted again in verse 21. This is the, the hub argument that he's going to explain Everything that Psalm 110 and verse 4 means, the simple line, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so now he just draws a simple point in verse 11. If perfection, sin removal, is not possible through the Levitical priesthood, it's like, obviously, well, why would we draw that conclusion? Because well later on in the scriptures, in the Psalms, Think about how much later we are than back in Exodus where we're establishing the Levitical priesthood. Much later in the Psalms, here is this prophecy. When the Messiah comes, he will not be a priest in the order of Levi. He will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Implying that the Levitical priesthood is unable to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. If the Levitical priesthood could bring completion to people, bring them to perfection, complete sin removal, why would we need a new priesthood? We would just stay with the Levitical priesthood. That's all he's doing in verse 11. There must be a necessity of a new priesthood because there's an inferiority with the Levitical one. It's not taking away sins. And thus, the big point that he's going to move them to see is that since perfection was not attainable through the Levitical priesthood, this son who is going to come is the only way there would be a definitive removal of sin. There's this contrast that's being set up. Levitical priesthood could not definitively remove sin and thus provide access to God. Think about that idea for a minute. When God set up the Levitical priesthood, you look at it in Exodus, you see it reiterated in Numbers. Could people just access God? 
you know, Joshmo Israelite goes, okay, great, we've got Levitical priesthood, so I'm going to walk into the Holy of Holies and go talk to God there, right there before the Ark of the Covenant, because we've got a priesthood. Notice that when God even set up the Levitical priesthood, what was implied was that there was not complete access to God. We saw in Numbers this kind of growing circle. It was like almost six degrees of separation from the Holy of Holies, where you would have the Holy of Holies and then the whole tabernacle itself, and only the priests could do so much. And then the Levites are outside of that, and then the tribes were further outside of that, and nobody could come near. Even under the Levitical system, that there's a priesthood intact. So the whole Old Testament system is showing an inferior situation, a problem that exists. It can't bring people completely to God. You cannot have full access to God. They had some, but it wasn't sufficient. Something needs to happen. And that's what verse 12 goes on to say. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. If we see the promise of Psalm 110 verse 4 saying that there must be one who's going to come not through the Levitical line as a priest, but like Melchizedek as a priest, then we need a different law because the law never said anything about having a priest than any other place but Levi. So if we're going to have a new priest, we need a new law, which chapters 8 through 10 will explore in great detail. But that's what verses 13 and 14 describe. What tribe does Jesus come from? Does he come from Levi? He does not. He comes from Judah. And this is the conundrum that the writer of Hebrews is expressing. You understand Jesus did not come from Levi. He comes from Judah. Well, the law doesn't say anything about a priest coming from Judah, which means we have to have a change of law for Jesus to be priest. That's all that's happening there in those verses, verses 13 and 14. Now look at verse 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now he's starting to draw some ideas. Notice in verse 15, he says, now it's more evident that we have a priest in Jesus who is like Melchizedek. Well, why is he like Melchizedek? Well, that same idea of this indestructible life. Here he is and you see no beginning or end. He fits the the mold of Melchizedek who suddenly appears on the scene. We read him in Genesis 14. We go, where did he come from? How is he a priest? We don't understand. And now Jesus comes along and he is priest and he can't be like the Levitical priest. He's like the priest of Melchizedek because of his, his indestructible life. That's the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. Is He's put to death and that is not the end. He raises from the dead indestructible life, proving His priesthood, proving that He is the Son of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews is underscoring in the quotation, you are priest 
forever. This priest would be indestructible in his life. He would continue on and never stop. Therefore, he must be of a different priesthood because verses 18 and 19, the Levitical priesthood made absolutely nothing perfect. And what he means by that is it just couldn't bring people fully to God. But notice verse 19 is saying, when Christ came, that's the better hope. Is now people would be able to fully access God in a way that wasn't possible before. Under the Levitical priesthood, you could not access God to the degree of what Jesus is able to accomplish. And thus he's able to do then what no earthly priest could do on a lot of levels, which is where he now goes with the rest of this. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made, su- were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said of him, You, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So notice what he says. Here's all the benefits that we now get from Jesus being a priest in the order of Melchizedek. His priesthood is superior because it was enacted on the oath. What oath is that? That's just quoted for us right there. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever. Of all of the other priests in the Levitical system, how many of them were appointed by an oath? Zero. And so again, you notice he's pointing out the superiority of Jesus in his priesthood. Therefore, He's the guarantor of a better covenant. And he is the guarantee of the promises of God coming to fruition. His priesthood proves that God's covenant promises are going to come to his people. Now, I'd like to take just a quick aside here in this and just note, just because you say that something is better doesn't make the first Bad. <laughs> we have the tendency to do that with things. I was trying to think of an example of, you know, think about back in, if you can reverse in your mind back to the first smartphone when that first iPhone came out, first touchscreen. Everything else had tactile buttons, and his was the first thing that had a touchscreen. And it was like, wow, this is amazing. Now, if you remember, that was like 2G, so it took five minutes to pull up a website on that thing, but it was amazing. Now, do you want the original iPhone right now with all the cool phones that we have today? No. Just because you make something better now doesn't mean that what was first given was bad. It was amazing back then, but now something better has come along. That's the whole point that's being made. Yes, the first covenant is good, but now because of this new covenant with this new priest, it makes that inferior, not bad inferior. It's just not as good as what you have now. And that's the whole idea of this superior priesthood, which is where he goes in verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Just imagine you had Aaron and then you had his son and his son and his son. And on and on you had the priests die, priests die, priests die. Many priests in number under the Levitical system. Verse 24, 
But speaking of Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Big point, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Two huge benefits that are being made here. Number one, Jesus is able to completely save those who draw near through him. I think the big part of that first half of that sentence is through him. There is no other way to have the unprecedented access to God except through this high priest. There are not multiple ways to God and multiple access points to God and we'll all just find our own path and we'll all come to that does not work according to the writer of Hebrews. He says there's only one path to be able to have this full access be made perfect, complete sin removal. And that's through Jesus. That's his first point that he wants to get at. He's able to to completely save, completely save those who draw near to him. Let that idea sink strongly in your minds. Jesus does not just partially save. He doesn't deal with only some of your sins or a few of your sins or only your small sins. He completely saves those who come to Him. Second, the rest of verse 25. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. This eternal priest with His indestructible life is able to intercede for you for your whole lifetime. You can't outlive Him. He will always be standing before the throne of God interceding for you. And so He can completely save every single sin and visualize us, and here He is, as this great high priest, interceding on your behalf for every single sin that you've committed. There he stands, allowing you to have access to God. Now the big conclusion, the big point that he now brings out, which was our reading this morning, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Think about how different this high priest is that we have. We have a high priest in Jesus who is holy, who is innocent, who is unsaved, who is unlike any other person who has ever served as high priest on behalf of the people. He is completely different, exalted above the heavens. And notice in verse 27, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for the sins of the people. Here is what the high priest would do. First they would make offerings for themselves, make themselves clean before God, and only then could they receive the sacrifices and make offerings on behalf of the people. He says, that's not what happened. We do not have a high priest who first has to deal with his own sins. He is holy, unstained, innocent, separated from sinners. 
He is the perfect high priest in every single way. But notice how it describes what he does. In verse 27, it says, It's not like those priests who offered the sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. No priest ever did that. Under the Levitical priesthood, every priest was a sinner. And they first had to deal with their own sins before they dared approach the presence of God to then make sacrifices and offerings on behalf of the people. This high priest comes along and he is perfect. He is holy. He is innocent. He is exalted above the heavens. He is everything that we need in a high priest. And what is his offering that he makes? Does he offer an animal? He offers up himself because that's what was necessary for our perfection. That's what it would take to have complete sin removal so that we could have full access to God. That is the point that he wants them to see. And it is a hard concept for us to understand, not because it's complicated, But because of what Dan exactly said during the Lord's Supper talk, it is hard for us to grasp the amazing love of God. Who read through this and it just, it's jarring to read, not because that was complex, but because why would God do something like that? Everything God has done is so that we would have the priest that we need so that we could draw near to God. Jesus is the King of righteousness, the King of of peace, the permanent high priest that God has promised. And all of that was done so that anyone who wanted to come to God came. Because we have a high priest making intercession on our behalf. If you want access to the Father, you can absolutely have it. Because we have a high priest who has offered himself to make it possible for you to stand before God. It's why you need that Levitical system in place to underscore how nobody comes near God. Nobody does. It was so stark to the minds of Israel when God first says, I'm going to come and meet my people at Mount Sinai. What does He tell the people to do? One, you better get clean and you better stand back because I'm coming down and if anything touches this mountain, it's going to die because you cannot approach God. He's too holy. And don't forget what the writer of Hebrews has said a couple chapters before. Stunning words back in chapter 4. Let us approach the throne of God with boldness. Are you kidding me? 
That's not possible. Unless you have a great, perfect high priest who makes intercession on behalf of the people that is so complete that you can safely stand in the presence of God. We have unprecedented access to our Lord because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Which, why Melchizedek? Why has he done all this? What is the point of Hebrews? Here's the point, friends. If you are struggling with your faith, if you are thinking about giving up, if you are trying to consider what should I do with my faith, the point that the writer of Hebrews is getting at here in chapter 7 is how could you give up now? Do you understand what you have? You have a better hope, according to verse 19. That you are able to draw near to God. In fact, you are asked to draw near to God. You are commanded to draw near to God. To come to Him boldly. To bring your petitions. To bring your requests. To bring your needs. In chapter 4 He said, And you will find grace and you will find mercy to help you in your time of need. How can you give up when you have that great hope? Not only that, He has said, Jesus is able to completely save those who draw near to Him. Will you please argue with God and tell God what sin you've committed that you cannot any longer draw near to God? Because God says, I'm completely saving all those who draw near to Me through Him. Why would you give up? Don't give up when you fail. Don't give up in your sin. Don't give up in your suffering. Don't give up in your trials. You have Jesus who is able to completely save. In fact, verse 25, I love this line. He lives to make intercession for you. The whole reason He did all of this is so that He could stand in the presence of God on your behalf and intercede For sinners, not a bunch of righteous, holy people, for sinners like us. Why would we give up the whole reason He did it? It's because we are sinners. Jesus doesn't die and say, okay, now all the perfect people, I will stand before God on their behalf. That's not the help we needed. Nobody would be there. He lives to intercede for those who've sinned. And He guarantees the covenant promises of God. Everything that God has ever promised toward all of us must come to pass. Because Jesus has proved it through the resurrection. The indestructible life. The perfect priesthood. He has fulfilled all of God's requirements. He is the high priest that we need so that He can guarantee to all of us we will receive all that has been promised. Why the section on Melchizedek? So that people will not give up and see what a glorious high priest we have. Don't give up because you failed. Don't give up in your suffering. Don't give up in your sin. Don't give up on your journey with God. Do not quit. Do not quit. Do not quit. Because that is what Satan wants you to do when you sin. 
is say, I am too bad, I am a lost cause, and I cannot do this anymore. What Satan wants you to do in the midst of your trial is to give up on God. It's too difficult, it's too hard, it's too much. That's what Satan wants you to do. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus lives to intercede for you. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't lose heart. You have a faithful high priest who is there forgiving your sins, interceding on your behalf today, tomorrow, and he will not outlast, or he will you will not outlast him because he has an indestructible life. He will always be there from start to finish, standing there for you. That's what chapter 7 is about. Don't quit. We have the high priest that we've always needed. And everything about the Levitical priesthood was to show we need something better. We need something that will be complete. That will fully do the job so that we can draw near to God. And Jesus is that answer. If you're in your sins, Jesus is the answer to your life. That today you will turn away from your sins. You will repent of those sins. Confess Jesus to be the Son of God who died for your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and enter into that relationship so that through Jesus you have that full access to God. Without that relationship with Jesus, you have no access. You need cleansing. And Jesus offers it. You are a Christian and you're struggling with faith. I hope you will hear the strong message of chapter 7. Don't give up. When you fall, turn back to Jesus who lives to intercede on your behalf. Can we help you? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?